0: with the thought that the Church Fathers, from their place in heaven, continue to guide us still. And that one of my hopes for this course is that we can each develop greater personal relationships with the Church Fathers, with a greater appreciation for both their spirit and their teaching, and especially their sense of presence with the Church as we approach this great Jubilee year. And I mentioned that this course will be kind of a combination of patrology and patristics, that is looking at some of the Church Fathers as living persons, saints, members of the mystical body of Christ, and then to spend some time on the thought of the Church Fathers with regard to our major dogmas, the Trinity, Christ, the sacraments in the church. And before beginning the more patristic part of the course, to introduce you to the church fathers, their names, when they lived, where they're from. And so to take a few minutes now I have the names of the major church fathers. Obviously in a course as short as this, it would be impossible to go into detail even on all of these yet alone some of the other church fathers but we break them down usually into the apostolic fathers the apologists the fathers of the third century and the great golden age of the fourth and early fifth centuries and then the later church fathers so briefly let us look and be introduced to who these fathers are as mentioned in our introductory lecture the apostolic fathers are those who would have known the apostles and the disciples of Christ personally and the three chief apostolic fathers are first of all Clement of Rome who was the bishop of Rome and one of the early successors of st. Peter The date of his death was either in the 80s or sometimes thought to be the year 96, but we're quite certain that he died before the end of the first century. Clement is particularly important for a letter he wrote to the Church of Corinth in which he reaffirms the primacy of the Bishop of Rome for his leadership. In matters of church order and the instructions that he gave to the church in Corinth. Saint Ignatius of Antioch is one of the great spiritual writers of the first and second centuries. He wrote a series of seven letters as he was taken in captivity from Antioch in Syria and taken to Rome and he wrote a series of letters to the churches that he passed one by one. And his letter to the Romans is a great spiritual classic. In it, knowing that he was being led towards martyrdom and knowing that the Christians of Rome had some influence, his concern was they might arrange for his freedom. And so he wrote to them expressing his desire to be martyred, to be one with Christ. And he uses the image of the wheat. That He speaks about how he wishes by being ground in the teeth of the wild beasts to be that wheat that is ground into the Eucharistic bread. And a wonderful example of martyrdom, a wonderful example of one who wants to be identified in body with the suffering, with the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Polycarp was martyred in his over 80 years of age and a great witness again to the life of the early church. The second grouping of church fathers are the apologists. In the early centuries there was growing resentment at various times and in various places. And Justin Martyr wrote an apology, not in a pejorative sense of that word, but in a strong sense of his conviction, of his belief and the firm foundation of our Christian way of life. And he wrote this to the pagans of Rome in making a case for the authenticity of the Christian way of life and to alleviate some of the fears and prejudices and some of the calumnies that were being said about the Christian community at that time. And Saint Irenaeus, the great Bishop of Lyon, who also was a martyr. And he led the charge against the great Gnostic heresies of the second and third centuries. A very important writer of his book Against the Heresies and an extremely important apologist. In the third century, we have both in the West and in the East very important fathers who laid the foundation for the growth and development of Catholic theology. Tertullian, much of our terminology that has become so much a part of our Roman Catholic inheritance comes from Tertullian. Hippolytus left us with a church order, a wonderful testimony to how the sacraments were celebrated in the third century, and St. Cyprian, the great Bishop of Carthage, wrote a work on the unity of the Church, which expresses much of the ecclesiological belief of our Catholic faith. And in the East, St. Clement of Alexandria began a catechetical school, which his successor, Origen developed into a great center of Christian learning. And in the fourth century often referred to as the Golden Age of the Fathers of the Church. The Pax Romana had been in place, the peace of the Church, and there was a time when the resources were such and the environment was such to foster great growth in theological thought, in discourse, in the development of the liturgy. Much of what has been handed down to us really has its great growth and foundation in the Golden Age in the fourth and early fifth centuries. St. Leo the Great, a great Pope, who together with Pope Gregory inherited the name of the Great lived at the time of the great Christological questions of how in the one divine person of Christ how could there be both a human nature and a divine nature. He wrote a letter that was picked up then by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD which was most influential in the development of our Christological statements. Saint Hilary of Poitiers wrote a wonderful work on the Trinity and unhappily for him, not unhappily for him, he's as pleased as we are, he was succeeded by some years by St. Augustine who wrote a definitive work on the Trinity and much of Hilary's thought has been incorporated into the writings of St. Augustine. So St. Hilary probably doesn't get the recognition that he would deserve or would have received except that he was surpassed by the great Saint Augustine who built much upon the thought of Saint Hilary, Saint Ambrose, and a great moralist in the church, a great pastor in the church, the great Bishop of Milan, and Saint Jerome, of course, noted for his tireless biblical studies and scholarship. We owe Saint Jerome a great debt of gratitude for translating much of the New Testament into the Latin, what has been come to know as the Vulgate edition of the Bible, which has remained normative for our Catholic Church in the West. Saints Augustine, Jerome, Ambrose, and Saint Gregory the Great are known as the Four Great Western Church Fathers. Those are four of the giants and we will refer to them many times during our course. With respect to the East, during the Golden Age of the fourth and early fifth centuries, first of all we have to note the great Saint Athanasius. He was a young deacon at the time of the Council of Nicaea and then led the battle in the East against the insidious heresy of Arius and his followers. The Arian heresy that denied the divinity of Christ was one of the great threats to the Christian church in the early centuries. And it was Saint Athanasius who carried the banner for the Orthodox Christian belief. He was exiled from his see at Alexandria no less than seven times and had to take refuge in the desert where very happily he became good friends with Saint Anthony of the desert and Saint Athanasius has written for us one of the great spiritual classics of all time the biography of Saint Anthony of the desert Saint Cyril of Alexandria together with Pope Leo the Great were most instrumental in giving us the Chalcedonian definition of the hypostatic union. Very important in the Church's development and deeper understanding of the relationship of the two natures in the One Divine Person of Christ. The three great Cappadocian Fathers are Saint Basil, who is also nicknamed the Great, the Great One of the East, as Leo and Gregory are so named in the West and together with his brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa and Basil's good friend, Gregory Nazianzus. And it was the three Gregories who did much to develop our Trinitarian theology, who articulated the distinction of the three persons in the one Trinity by introducing the concept of relations that while there is one essence, one God, there are three persons that differ in their relation to one another. The Son is begotten by the Father and the Father is the one who begets. So, very important in the development of the Trinitarian doctrine of our faith and also to reaffirm the divinity of the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit. One of the great works on the Holy Spirit is that of Saint Basil. And after Saint Athanasius had successfully turned back the tide of the Arian heresy denying the divinity of Christ, there were some who tried then, as subsequent, to deny the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And so it was St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nyssa and great St. Gregory of Nazianzen who led and held the banner for the orthodoxy of our Trinitarian belief in the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Gregory of Nyssa, the brother of St. Basil, one of the truly great mystics of the patristic era and his writings today are jewels in the mystical inheritance that we have from the church fathers. And finally, St. John Chrysostom, who wrote a wonderful short work on the priesthood, which has been prayed and handed down to priests and to seminarians generation after generation. A great sense of the great mystery, the great privilege of standing at the holy altar and consecrating the bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. Chrysostom means the golden mouth and John was one of the great preachers of all time and his sermons that he has left behind are a great treasure in the inheritance of the patristic age. And then finally the later fathers of the church in the West, Saint Gregory the Great, Gregorian chant, which has been such an integral part of our Catholic liturgy, is attributed either directly or indirectly to St. Gregory the Great. Many refer to him as the one who established the tradition of the great medieval popes. By the early 600s, the ability of the Roman Emperor of the East to defend or to be a spokesperson for the city of Rome had pretty much vanished. And the people of the city looked to the Holy Father not only for spiritual leadership and guidance but also to be an inspiration and a defender of the public order as well. And then in the West, as I mentioned earlier, some consider the end of the patristic era to be with Gregory. Others would extend it to Saint Isidore who in Spain died in 336, or some also to the great English author and historian, Saint Bede, who died in the year 735. In the East, a wonderful mystical work on the ascent of the spiritual life. We don't know who the author is, but he called himself Dionysius, referring to the young man that Paul mentions in the Acts of the Apostles. It was common, we might consider it dishonest, but they thought that to put some sort of biblical approbation on a work might give it more appeal, and it certainly worked. This became a classic of Greek spirituality, was translated into Latin, and also then became a classic of Western spiritual life and the growth into the spiritual life and then finally Saint John Damascene who died in the year 749 and which most consider the end of the patristic era in the East. So this gives the scope and framework of the Chief Fathers of the Church and now as we begin to develop the thought of the Church Fathers I will be making reference to various ones of these as we trace some of their thought and the great contribution to our Catholic theology. In considering the teachings of the Church Fathers, we ought to begin with the Trinitarian God as understood by the Fathers. This of course is at the very heart and center together with Christology of our Catholic faith, of our Catholic creed. And it was the first question that the church had to struggle with after the apostolic era. The question of how can there be one God and yet in sacred scripture we hear mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus identified himself with the Father. The Father and I are one. And Jesus made mention of the Holy Spirit very explicitly, it's good that I leave so that the advocate, the paraclete can come. So how within the strong Jewish doctrine and inheritance of monotheism and in the face of the polytheism found in the Roman Empire, in the state religions at that time, How could a doctrine of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit not be misunderstood as either a denial of the monotheism of the Old Testament or mistakenly identified with the polytheism of the Greco-Roman world? A particularly difficult doctrine that had to be faced fairly early was that of Marcion, a Christian heretic who opposed the Creator God of the Hebrew scripture to the loving God of the Christian scripture. And he viewed the God of the Old Testament as distinct and in fact in opposition to the God of the New Testament. And he forced upon the church the question of the canon of Scripture since he rejected the Hebrew Scriptures and accepted only certain books of the Christian Scriptures. And the fathers reacted by affirming the unity and identity of God throughout history. One of Marcion's motives was to exonerate God from evil in the world. And There was another group called the Manichees accepted a principle of evil, a God responsible for evil, over and against the God who was responsible for good. So the fathers also had to fight against this. In addition, there was a strong force of the Greek doctrine of fate which determined human actions as being opposed to free will and they made of God or the gods someone who removed all human causality and initiative. One of the things that you will see in your study and reading of the Church Fathers is their ceaseless affirmation of free will because They see in this a defense of the true notion of God whose image man is precisely because he is free. And I mentioned earlier with regard to St. Irenaeus, the doctrine of the Gnostics, who believe that some are by creation made pneumatics and so are sure of salvation, that is they are basically spirit people others are somatics basically earthly people who cannot be saved and others are psychics who are kind of in between and who may or may not be eligible for salvation and so the father's reaction to all of this to the Marcion separation of the God of evil from the God of good the manichees who accepting this principle of God over and against a God responsible for evil, the doctrine of fate, and of course the insidious and very dangerous teaching of the Gnostics, all had to be faced very early by the Church Fathers. Before going into further detail on the specific development of Trinitarian thought in the Church Fathers, it may be helpful to articulate clearly what became the orthodox patristic teaching and therefore the orthodox Catholic faith as expressed in the Council of Nicaea in 325 and that of Constantinople in the year 381. With regard to the one divine essence substance or nature of God as three distinct persons the church fathers say this first of all the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit are not merely three names three forms three evolutions or three modes of the divine being but three persons really distinct from each other before the mind's consideration of them. One of the early heresies, that of modalism, tried to argue that the distinction found in sacred scripture between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reflected more three ways of our understanding that there is only one person, but we would understand this one person in three modes or in three ways. The Church Fathers clearly affirm the real distinction of three persons, independent of the human mind's consideration of them. Secondly, the Fathers affirm that each person is coessential or consubstantial. The Greek word homoousios, three persons consubstantial, which each of the others and so equal to each of the others. Each possesses the true, entire, numerically one divine essence or substance without division or separation. Hence, Each possesses all of the divine attributes. For example, we can say God the Father is all-powerful. God the Son is all-powerful. God the Holy Spirit is all-powerful. All three persons embody the fullness of wisdom, goodness, justice, mercy, and eternity. The third aspect of Trinitarian patristic doctrine is that there is a certain order of origin among the three divine persons but this is without priority or posteriority in time and without superiority or inferiority in being the father has no source no principle and is principle or source of the son and the holy spirit The Son, also called Word, proceeds from the Father by way of generation or birth. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but not by way of generation or birth. And finally, the Church Fathers affirm that each person, although really distinct from each of the other two by origin, is the one God, the one absolute reality of God. So these four basic principles came to be the common teaching of the Church Fathers and remain the authentic teaching of the Catholic Church today. Now how did the Church Fathers get to this Nicene Constantinople way of thinking. Well, let us look first of all at the early expressions of faith in the Trinity. The faith of the first Christians in the mystery of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was expressed in a pre-scientific or what we might call a pre-theological way always based, first of all, on sacred scripture. Scripture was used in liturgical services and was read with veneration. And I have mentioned already that the Church Fathers are essentially commenters on sacred scripture. And the scripture was gradually gathered together in its official corpus called the Canon of Scripture. Now, with respect to the Trinity, These New Testament writings speak of God, of the Father, of the Son, who is also the wisdom of God, the image of God, or the image of the Father. And this Son is proclaimed Lord, Kyrios, which is the Greek equivalent of the sacred name of God venerated by the Jews. In John, the second person of the Blessed Trinity is referred to as the Logos, or the Word of God. He is also referred by St. Paul as the Wisdom of God, of the Son, as Jesus Christ. And in St. Paul's writings we find many triadic or triple formulae, God Son, Spirit. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 6, Paul writes of God, Lord, and Spirit. And as mentioned earlier in the Joannine writings, the Holy Spirit is clearly presented in a distinct way as another paraclete. Or another advocate. So the Church Fathers then building on these many references of the Most Holy Trinity in sacred Scripture. In addition to the scriptural basis of developing Trinitarian thought, early catechetical instructions proved to be very important because the rule of faith handed on to the neophytes was always in relation to faith in the Father, in the Son, that is, the Word, Christ our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. And the early creeds were developed out of this catechetical instruction and these creeds, especially those used at baptism, show that those to be baptized professed their belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture scholars suggest that Matthew twenty-eight nineteen Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, itself reflects the liturgical practice and formulae of the early church. It does reveal clearly an explicit belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who were considered on an equal level. The Didache, which is one of the earliest extant post New Testament writings that we have, and often referred to as the Instruction of the Twelve Apostles, a document from the second, or some might even say from the first century, directs that baptism be administered as follows, and I quote, Baptize as follows. After first explaining all these points, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, Baptize in other water. And if you cannot in cold, then in warm. But if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the early creeds, the early baptismal formulae clearly affirm the belief and the profession of faith in the Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The early prayers of the sacred liturgy also demonstrate this faith in the Trinity. And, of course, the oft-quoted dictum, lex credende est lex orande, what we believe is indeed what we pray. And so, one of the ways of discerning the faith of the early church is to examine carefully the prayers of the early church. And as we do so, we see clearly present the belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal persons in one God. For example, St. Justin, in his first Apology, one of the second century apologists of the church states that glory to the father of all things in the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and Saint Polycarp the great apostolic father who was martyred says this at the time of his martyrdom I glorify thee through the everlasting and heavenly high priest Jesus Christ thy beloved son through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit." End of quote. So these sources show the simple direct faith of the early Christians in the reality of the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. Often this faith expressed belief in each person in relation to some particular work or function of that person in the Christian person or community But as Christians began to think about the faith and try to express it as they sought some further understanding difficulties arose how can we better understand what is by nature understandable and yet They needed to be able to articulate their faith for one another, for those whom they were evangelizing, for the society around them who were questioning them. And so, for all these reasons, they had to better understand how to relate to each of these three persons and yet, at the same time profess their belief in one God the Christians indeed were steeped in the Jewish scripture and Jewish tradition monotheism was their dividing line the line in the sand between the pagan polytheism and the gnostic emanationism which surrounded them at the same time they knew and had proclaimed to them and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord that is Kyrios God himself and so their belief in monotheism and their proclamation as Jesus as Lord as Kyrios raised two questions the first question might be articulated as follows how is God one if Jesus Christ is son of God the Father and so distinct from God the Father and yet is God this is referred to as the Trinitarian problem the Holy Spirit's place was not closely studied until the problem about the Son was settled. And, as mentioned previously, it was Saint Athanasius, the great eastern father of the fourth century, who led the fight against Arius and those who would deny the divinity of Christ. Arius would say, because Christ is a begotten Son, no son can be equal to the father and as great as christ may be as a human person we cannot affirm his divinity and it was athanasius who in his works against the heretics and his works on the incarnation established our orthodox belief that christ as lord as kyrios is indeed equal to the father in every way So, Athanasius fought that first question of the relationship of the Father and of the Son. And then, once that was settled, it fell upon the Cappadocian Fathers then to take the next step and to reaffirm the divinity and the equality of the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And they did that through the development of the distinction of the three persons through understanding their relation to one another. So, this is the first great problem that the Church Fathers face, the Trinitarian problem. The second great question raised in seeking to understand more completely our Catholic doctrines and the deposit of our faith is what we might call the Christological question how then is Jesus Christ whom has been affirmed as God as the second person of the Blessed Trinity how can Jesus Christ be both God and man and still somehow remain one this is the problem of the incarnation or as it later came to be called the hypostatic union and although it was already present as a problem earlier it came to the fore in the fifth century and it fell upon saint leo the great and saint cyril of alexandria to be very key in formulating the church's teaching on the hypostatic union now One of the ways that the Church Fathers came to their clear understanding of Trinitarian and Christological dogma was, as I mentioned earlier, in response, in reaction to the early heresies of the Church. St. Augustine, in one of his writings, comments on how the heretics, in fact, did us a favor because they forced us to think more deeply and to become more precise in our articulation of the great doctrines of our faith. Now, with regard to the question of how is God one if Jesus Christ is Son of God and yet is God, well, an early solution that appealed to the monotheistic Jewish climate was to say that Jesus was the Messiah but not God. That he was an ordinary man with an extraordinary mission. At the baptism in the Jordan, it was held he was invested with his messianic mission and given a heavenly spirit. He was adopted as Son of God. And hence the term adoptionism is given to one of the early Christological heresies. I have made mention of the Gnostics who emphasized a transcendence and oneness of the highest God in their pantheon said that an eon, a spiritual being, between this supreme God and matter entered Jesus and made him a savior. So Jesus was somehow kind of in via media, a little more than a man and little less than a God. The Christian apologists of the second century, that is Justin and especially Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, reacted to these doctrines by stressing the divinity of Jesus Christ. And they did so by developing a doctrine of the divine logos, or the divine word of God. We have noted that Saint John speaks of the word as logos now Justin as well as tertullian and others took this biblical notion of the word and combined with it developments from philo a Jewish thinker living in Alexandria and therefore in touch with Hellenic culture and from Greek philosophy in order to describe the relation of Christ to God the Father. And so out of the apologists and then coming to fruition in Saint Clement of Alexandria in the east came the development of what we might call a Christian gnosis. Again taking the best of pagan wisdom of Greek philosophy and building upon that Being faithful to the Johannine tradition as Christ as Logos and developing a Christian Logos as a way of understanding more fully the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So, in this way, the sacred authors of the Church Fathers linked the generation or birth of the Word, his being of the Father, with the becoming or with this moment of understanding Jesus as Logos or as Word made flesh. And as for the Holy Spirit, much less was said about this person until the Christological question was more resolved. A few words about Tertullian. Tertullian was very important in the development of the Church's Trinitarian and Christological thinking through the introduction of a terminology that resonated with the culture around him and yet was faithful to the scriptural basis of our understanding of the Most Holy Trinity. Tertullian speaks clearly of the one substance of God and of the persons of the Blessed Trinity, which he numbered as three. And he also speaks of the property of each person, this property being the characteristic of each by which each is distinguished from the others. And so in Tertullian then, we have the basis, the beginnings of a terminology that would come to fruition in the great ecumenical councils of the patristic era. With regard to the denial of the real distinction of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Church had to fight the doctrine that is referred to as monarchianism. Stressing the divine unity or monarchia, that is, one principle or one source, and fearing that the Logos doctrine meant two gods, some said that if Christ is God, he must really be the Father, since God is only one. The Father, therefore, was the one who underwent Christ's own human experiences. The Father suffered. Sometimes the monarchianists were called the patripassionists that is the father suffering as well as monarchianists and others as I mentioned thought that the father and the son were different in name only and this modalism was sometimes given the name of Sabellianism because of the person of Sibelius who advocated this doctrine and Tertullian, in addition to developing the terminology which was to assist in the Church's understanding of the Trinitarian doctrines, was also important in refuting these teachings of Sibelius and the modalists. His theology of the Word, who is in God but distinct from the Father, proved to be very important. In the East, the great threat to the Catholic faith, as I've mentioned before, was that of Arianism. It first appeared in the reaction of Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria against Sabellianism or modalism. And it stressed the distinction of the Son from the Father. Remember, the modalist kind of brought together the Father and the Son as one only experienced subjectively in us in different ways. Well, in reaction to that, some went too far to the other side by accenting so forcefully the distinction that the equality of the Father and the Son was threatened. This teaching, first introduced by the Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, was picked up and forcefully promulgated by a priest of Alexandria by the name of Arius and this then became one of the great threats to our Catholic faith if we deny the divinity of Christ of course then the whole transcendent realm or the whole transcendent dimension of our life together in Christ is leveled out. Christianity would therefore be reduced to a rational philosophy. And so as Arius and his followers continued to agitate, finally in the year 325 the Emperor Constantine convoked a gathering of bishops to what he hoped would settle the affair. And so in 325, 318 bishops met at Nicaea, a town in Asia Minor. And there the bishop fashioned a new creed declaring that the son is from the substance of the Father, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, but then the key word homoousius, of one substance or essence, with the father. Now, one might have hoped that that would have ended the question, but it only began the further dispute. Arius rejected the Nicene Creed, and for the next 50 years, right up until the time of his death, Saint Athanasius who died in the year 373 dedicated his life to combating the errors of Arius and finally the orthodox teaching of the West triumphed in the next great ecumenical council the Council of Constantinople in the year 381 and so it took all of the 4th century in order that the threat of the Arian heresy be defeated. After the council in 381, then there also arose the question of the Holy Spirit. And as we mentioned before, it was left to the Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa, to affirm the divinity of the Holy Spirit they appealed to the practice of the church in paying equal faith and honor to the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son by demonstrating and by reminding us that the church has always prayed to him equally and secondly they showed that the sacred scripture presents the Holy Spirit as giving divine life by participation so that he must be divine if he only shares or participates in divinity he could not give others a share in divine life that is one cannot give what one does not possess in himself and so as the fourth century came to a close and finally the creed first proposed by Nicaea in 325 was reaffirmed by the First Council of Constantinople in the year 381. And the consubstantiality, the common substance or essence or nature of the three distinct persons in the Blessed Trinity has been clearly affirmed and reaffirmed and handed down to all of us as the recipients of the deposit of faith. The Creed professes faith that the Holy Spirit is God and it avoids the two extremes of a monarchianism or a modalism that on the one hand would have dissolved the real distinction of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and also the other extreme of a subordinationism that would have destroyed the equality and the consubstantiality of the three persons, the Church gradually perfected the three persons, which the Church gradually reaffirmed as it perfected its own expression and formulation of what it has always believed from the beginning and lived in its liturgy and prayer. So, the Fathers of the Church again reaffirming the scriptural, the catechetical, the basic baptismal creeds in a way that develops and sustains and enriches and nourishes us all in our Trinitarian faith and belief. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.